What's going on, everyone? Thank you again for tuning in to the Truth Be Told Hosea 4-6 podcast. Um, again, uh, we've kind of went over introducing ourselves. Hopefully you guys know our names by now. If not, um, shame on you. Um, <laughs> but um, we um, coming to you again with a very, very special one. Um, we have a uh, special guest with us today. Um, um, long, extensive resume, I must say. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, she uh, she holds a Master of Divinity from Union Presbyterian Seminary, a PhD in Hebrew and Aramaic from the University of Cambridge. Uh, she's an ordained minister, has taught Bible and preached the gospel in the United States and West Africa. She has worked as an advocate with multiple organizations to develop programs fostering healing and prevention of sexual abuse, human trafficking, and gender-based violence. She's the founding director of Lydia House International, a nonprofit supporting ministry to at-risk women and girls in Liberia, West Africa. We can go on and on and on of this lovely sister of ours, uh, but without further ado, we have Dr. Marco Breeze. Yay! Give the applause. <laughs> Thank you so much for that introduction. It was very excessive. <laughs> I'm happy to be here. Oh, we are. I know I'm thrilled. I'm like kid in a candy shop right now. This is, I'm so glad you joined us. Very, very much so. I mean, when you see somebody with a PhD from Cambridge, you know, you like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> that's that's major game changer. Um, so I'm, I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So, ladies and gentlemen, so Biblical Archaeology Society not too long ago put out an article entitled, Was Jesus a Jew? It says that some Christians held that Jesus was actually Christian. Some said that he was Aryan Christian. But in recent decades, scholars have been returning to ancient historical settings and discovering the Jewish Jesus. And so that's the point of contention today. Dr. Margot Reese, how Jewish was Jesus? Well, I mean, he was about as Jewish. I, I don't know if there's like a level of Jewishness other than <laughs> conversion versus right. birth because it is an ethnicity um, and not just a religion. And, mm -hmm. and I, to be honest, at the outset, that's something important to notice. Um, you know, a lot of us are raised in Sunday school thinking, well, these are religions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, mm -hmm. you know, so on and so forth. And while that has some validity, um, Judaism is an ethnicity. There mm -hmm. are secular Jews, there are atheistic Jews, you know, mm -hmm. in modern times. Mm -hmm. So to say how Jewish was somebody is really just a matter of their genealogy. And of course, we have Jesus's genealogy in black and white here, right mm -hmm. in the book of Matthew. And and then somewhat differently uh, in the book of Luke. And so, um, you know, I, I think um, it's not just about how he was born, but the fact that all of the testimony of scripture shows him as a fulfillment of Old Testament scripture or Hebrew Bible, however you want to mm -hmm. say that. And, um, you know, because obviously the Old Testament is part of the Christian Bible, but to Jews, it's the whole Bible. So I would just say the Hebrew Bible there. Right. That, you know, we see Jesus as um, the fulfillment of this. And even, you know, in the book of Matthew, which is considered by scholars, they sort of say it's the most Jewish gospel because mm. it's basically written to a Jewish audience, right. we presume. Mm -hmm. um, and it has the most Old Testament references in it when talking about Jesus. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of my favorite as a reference point. Um but, you know, in terms of his birth, you've got, well, I try to write this down, you, just in terms of his birth, you have references to prophetic um, sort of foreshadowing of the Messiah, prophetic visions of the Messiah uh, in Isaiah, Micah, Jeremiah, and Hosea, just mm -hmm. in reference to his birth. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, you have other events in his life, Palm Sunday and things like that, um, that are linked, even at his crucifixion, that are linked to Old Testament prophecy. So he's seen as the fulfillment of these things. Mm -hmm. well, there is no other way to understand a person who fulfilled Old Testament prophecy, because that prophecy was written specifically to Jewish people, for mm -hmm. Jewish people. Mm -hmm. Part of what we understand as Christians is that until Jesus was raised from the dead and the Holy Spirit was given on the day of Pentecost, 
or the feast of weeks, either, either word that you want to use for that. Mm -hmm. Um, only the Israelites and a few minor exceptions, um, who were notable, but they were exceptions. Only the Israelites knew that the Messiah was coming, knew who to look for, knew whether this was him or not, understood whether he fulfilled these things. Other Gentiles never even had heard of that. They didn't know to look for it. Right. Um, it's then the inclusion of the Gentiles and the whole world after his resurrection. And he tells the disciples, you know, go and wait. And once you've been filled with power from on high, then go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus didn't really go to the Gentiles when he was on earth because it, it wasn't practical <laughs> mm -hmm. at that moment. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, there's, I don't really understand how someone, unless they have an ulterior motive, could say that Jesus was not Jewish. Um, <laughs> Um, se secondly, I will just say, if you look at all of his interactions with the religious leaders of his time, who obviously right. were Jewish, um, mm -hmm. Pharisees and Sadducees, priests, teachers of the law, um, and his disciples, all the people around him, you know, the heroes and the villains in these stories are all Jews. It's a Jewish book, you know, mm -hmm. until you get to the epistles of Paul. It really right. is. Till right. Acts and, and what Paul did, it, it really is. Um, his method of argumentation, the way that he um, speaks to them, the way he, he pulls out scriptural interpretation is all based uh, in a rabbinic method that is very obvious and clear and well-known. And most Jews I know who believe that he was a person that existed, um, you know, see him as having just been a rabbi who was a pretender to being a Messiah, but they don't think that he wasn't Jewish. Right, right. So when, let me, you said something point right there so when a you know a, a jew is to read the gospels just to read it um they would see a very authentic jew with jesus um if they were to read it yes uh right. the more devout <laughs> the more devout they are the less likely they are they to are, read right. there. Okay. um but yeah for example um jacob noisner or some people say newsner but um he's a i think he's finally um gone home, but, uh, <laughs> but he was alive for many, many years. He was, he's a Jewish scholar. And um, he wrote extensively about Jesus in the gospels. And he sort of picked apart the way Jesus taught, the way he interacted with the rabbis. He did it in a skeptical way where he didn't believe, he doesn't ever think that Jesus was the Messiah. Right. But it never, it was never a question in his mind that this is, yes, a rabbi that's using commonly accepted rabbinic argumentation methods and references to scripture that were used during second, second temple Judaism. And those, mm -hmm. those types of methods we have recorded in rabbinic literature, which for those of you who don't know what that, that is, rabbinic just comes from the word rabbi, meaning mm -hmm. uh, written literature that comes from an oral tradition of the teachings of the Jewish teachers, the rabbis. And rabbi just means teacher. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. Um, so do you, do you feel as, as touching on um, that, that, rabbi that studied christ um noisner is he was the, not a rabbi he was actually just okay. a scholar but yes just a scholar okay cool cool sorry about that um, no, that's, that's okay. so would you say that the gospels preserved his Jew, uh jesus heritage pretty well or should um, we understand that in greco-roman biography are they i'm hoping i'm saying that correctly are they preserving his his heritage well um, I think, you know, it's interesting. That's, that's almost like a trick question because uh -oh. to, no, to <laughs> that question, there are two types of answers that people will give. And in my opinion, they're not actually saying two separate things. They're just focusing on two different aspects of the gospel. Mm -hmm. So I would say they do preserve Jesus Jewishness. If you know what you're looking at, I mm -hmm. think that the issue is the gospels themselves absolutely preserve a picture of Jesus as a Jewish teacher and also as the son of God. I mean, I want to mm -hmm. say that, you know, they, they preserve the whole picture. Um, however, I think that when we, particularly in modern um, Western context, have been taught this text by people who are very Westernized and don't understand uh, Semitic history, they don't understand Second Temple Judaism, it's not a common subject that's taught in Sunday school or even right. Christian seminary, frankly, um, oh, yeah. sadly, um, you know, they haven't been taught those things. So when they read it, um, they don't see something that another person that, that understands Second Temple Judaism would see. 
So mm-hmm. do the gospels preserve it? Yes. Could a person with no background information that doesn't understand anything about second temple Judaism pick up on those things? Maybe not. Mm-hmm. And that means that yes, they're preserved, but it will require some, you know, just a little bit of help or information or study maybe to, to draw those things out. Mm-hmm. The truth of the gospel about Jesus Christ is accessible to anyone for sure. Let me be clear about that. But these underlying, you know, threads that show us more and help us understand maybe a clearer picture of what he's trying to say in certain parts of the New Testament, may, it may not be quite as clear without that mm-hmm. uh, background knowledge. Yeah, I was, um, you know, with seminary, you kind of hear it here and there about Second Temple literature, you know, um, but it's just like now I just got like, whoa, you know, let me go out and start reading some of this because it's starting certain aspects start to make sense in the Gospels, you know, um, so that I mean that I'm not saying to our audience just you know, you need to go and get you a degree in Second Temple. <laughs> like, right. You know, it yeah. doesn't hurt to just kind of brush up on some little stuff or either just kind of dig into a little bit because, you know, that was part of, you know, first century was the literature that came from that time period. Well, Second Temple, whenever we put that starting date is Second Temple. Um, so that that's, 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 you know, very helpful for us. Um, you know, when we, we're starting to study the Gospels, look at the Gospels, um, you know, as what you were saying in Sunday school is this is what we're not taught. And for some of us, it's detrimental. And some people have a crisis of faith or, you know, you might get swayed into an, a subset of something, you know, because they have an understanding, but they can kind of twist that understanding to a mm-hmm. certain Yeah, that's extent. true. Yeah. Um, I have a quick question. Go ahead, brother. Um, and I, I, I may have missed this, so I apologize if I did. Um, and in brief, can you describe what Second Temple Judaism is? Um, it is really the period of time um, from the construction, the reconstruction of the temple, which you can read about, for example, in Nehemiah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that period of time, the Jews went into Babylonian exile. Now, I didn't prepare for this, so my dates are going to be off. So I'm not going to say numbers you're good. right now. Okay, but but really, we're talking about like <laughs> the seventh to sixth to fifth century A.D. Mm-hmm. I mean, sorry, B.C. <laughs> um, during that period of time, there was a series of wars. The Babylonian exile occurred. Um, that was in the sixth century, and um, before Christ, and um, that means all the children of Israel were exiled from Jerusalem. They went into Babylon for 70 years. Mm-hmm. Um, after that period of time was over, they were allowed to return. The Persian king gave them the right to be, rebuild the temple, and they began to do that. So what is commonly referred to as Second Temple Judaism, really, it doesn't really start at the moment that they started rebuilding the temple. It more is meant to refer to another way to say it. It would be... Um, the intertestamental period is what a lot of people say, mm-hmm. which would just be sort of those centuries surrounding what I, my children like to say, the year zero. They're obsessed with the year zero. <laughs> They're like, if there's what, what happened that year, you know? Right. So, um, you know, the couple of centuries surrounding that, and that's what we call the intertestamental period. The, the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament was completed. The New Testament had not yet been written down. And that's the period of time when we find Jesus appearing. Um, and as, as we've been taught, obviously, in the book of Malachi, that, that final prophecy about the great and terrible day of the Lord, we believe that it was 400 years of silence from the prophet right. of God before Jesus came. And mm-hmm. um, so, you know, that, that period of time, uh, you know, is what's referred to as Second Temple period Judaism, but it's usually meant to refer to those later years, um, right around the time when Jesus was was on earth. And then, of course, that that is abruptly ended in 70 AD, which is when the Romans destroyed uh, the temple in Jerusalem, Mm -hmm. as Jesus prophesied or told his disciples that not one stone was left upon another. Mm -hmm. Um, Thank you, Jamal, because I mean, some people that have thank you proclivity to already understanding what second temple Judaism is. And some people, wait a minute, what are you talking about? Second temple Judaism? You know, right. You're trying to give me a whole nother book and that, you know, right. no, wait a minute. It's some, it's some material in between that, you know, <laughs> but, um, 
So uh, common, you know, what we might hear on the internet, you know, might hear. Be careful about the internet. (laughs) (laughs) For real. Yes. (laughs) You know, YouTube is all of these mysteries about where would Jesus be from? We don't hear anything from Mm. 12 to 30. And I think that we're not understanding what a young Jewish boy would be doing. You know, and so we, well, he was in India or he was in Egypt learning the mysteries and magic. Well, let's back up a little bit. So, Dr. Reese, where would or what would Jesus been doing from ages 12 to 30? Um, You know, I'm glad you asked that question, even though I... I like it when you would ask me a question I don't know the answer to because it means <laughs> it's going to get interesting, um, you know. Um, and I, I mean, you know, one common um, theory, obviously, is you know his father Joseph was a carpenter, and it's that he would have worked for his mm-hmm. father during that time, which would have been his traditional role as the son mm-hmm. of a poor family living in a very poor and depressed place, which was Nazareth, um, as you know, when <laughs> Nathaniel says. Uh, can anything good come out of Nazareth, right? right I mean, that right. was the view of that place, um, Galilee and the Galileo and, uh, and, and Nazareth. It was a poor town. It, it still is um, very much almost like a ghetto um, mm. today. When you, when you go there, there's, there's so much fighting and things that happen there. It's mm-hmm. interesting mm-hmm. when you go and see that, and not all of it, but parts of it, and you'll see that. And I was impressed with that when I was in Israel, was thinking that about Nazareth and Bethlehem, you know, these places are still humble places today. They were then and they still are now. And we have to remember that about Jesus. You know, you go to Jerusalem, you see these big golden gilded temples that people built to him. You, you see what, you know, the, the Vatican has built and it is beautiful artwork and God is worthy of that kind of glory and praise. But we have to remember what, what God did when he took on human flesh. He deliberately chose the most unremarkable, most everyday form mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. To, to make a statement to us that he is not a king dressed in soft robes, you know, mm-hmm. that he is, that every one of us is a reflection of the image of God. And so, um, you know, when you, when I thought about this question um, once before, I think, you know, the thing that comes into my mind is like Isaiah 53 too. It says, you know, he grew up before him like a young plant. And that first, first part of that verse is referring to his growth time. That's when he was growing from 12 to 30. That's mm-hmm. the period of time when he grew like a young plant. And so what it comes next, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was like one from whom we held our, you know, uh, turned our faces. We held him of no account. He was Mm -hmm. just like nobody. He blended into the crowd. Mm -hmm. That's really hard for us to accept, but I don't think he had it. And there's a reason we don't know what he looked like because not, you know, he was everybody. I mean, and, and I think, um, to me that that's why we love him because his spirit, our spiritual relationship with him takes that precedence over the fact that we can't see what he physically looked like. There were so few who saw. And, you know, when they did, they still didn't understand the truth about him until after his resurrection. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, they didn't recognize him. They didn't understand on the road to Emmaus when the disciples see him. They walked with him. They saw him. They knew what he looked like. And yet he said, don't, don't you understand? And right. he had to open their minds to understand mm-hmm. everything about himself in the scripture um, even though they had been with him all that time. And so I mm-hmm. think, you know, there's something about his physical um, and sort of um, lifestyle unremarkableness up until the beginning of his ministry at age 30 uh, that we need to kind of, you know, allow that to kind of settle in. I don't think he was, first of all, he, he was God incarnate. So he didn't need to go to Egypt and learn mysteries and <laughs> things like Thank that, you. you know. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So would you say like at that time he still would maybe been learning the law? Like I, I think that we see, I think it's in numbers where it talks about that's when men, Jewish men can begin ministry. Is there a certain time frame where he probably would have, you know, said, okay, I need to start. Well, of course, I guess I'm not, let me, let me kind of be more practical when he would have started learning the law because of oral culture or how would, is there a certain point of time? I think um, the common defense for that would have been, well, he would have been studying the law, but, you know, he was still 
you know, skilled with being a carpenter because of his dad or Joseph? Is that earthly? Um, I mean, I think this is a point of debate because we really just don't know. So, right. yes, um, some young Jewish boys would have gone to become, usually they started at age seven learning, mm -hmm. um, although that, that might be later because a lot of this tradition is preserved from it's not written down until say like the fifth or sixth century AD. Mm -hmm. So even though it preserves a younger tradition, it might, you know, we just don't know. Right. Um, but um, that, yes, they would begin to learn to read and write. And um, there was no separation between their academic education and their religious education. It was, it was taught by rabbis um, and teachers, but you know, if, if you were poor back then, um, you know, becoming a rabbi and studying to become a rabbi and being the disciple of, of a well-known rabbi are very prestige. It's a very prestigious uh, thing. And if you were a poor family and you had to make money, that's probably not in your future. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and um, I mean, even now with Orthodox communities, it's, you know, that's the most prestigious thing you can do, but you better have some money because it's going to be a lot of years of studying. You're not going to have anything coming in. Um, and uh, so you know, it's interesting. We really don't know the answer, but one thing that I find interesting is that, um, so in rabbinic literature, there's an issue uh, and rabbinic arg argumentation, there's an issue called attribution. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that, so for example, if you read the Mishnah or the Talmud um, and these rabbis are arguing, they'll say, it won't say, they'll say, uh, Rabbi Hillel says, blah, blah, blah. But right. Rabbi Ben Shammai says, blah, blah, mm -hmm. blah. And they don't mean that those men were all in the same room together at the same time necessarily, unless they state that specifically. What mm -hmm. they mean is the school of this person teaches this way about this mm -hmm. scripture. The school of this person teaches this way about this scripture. Similar to denominations, not as, not as exact, but similar, mm -hmm. you know, this is what we believe about baptism. This is what right. we believe about that. And, and they're both talking about the same scripture, but they're mm -hmm. taking other cross references and they're making their own systematic theology or dogma or, whatever. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and uh, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because, you know, there's a passage uh, and it's preserved in all three synoptic gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, when Jesus is doing miracles and um, casting out demons and the Pharisees come to him and they say, by, by what authority are you doing these things? Mm -hmm. um, and who gave you this authority? Now to our Western Sunday school Christian brain, that means, you know, they're like, well, don't they understand that God is his authority? <laughs> but that's not the way Jews thought of that. So right. what, what they were saying is, what school did you study in that you got the, these teachings? Because we've never heard some of these mm. teachings. Where, wow. where did you get this authority? In other words, was it Rabbi so-and-so? Was it Rabbi so -and -so? Mm. Where did you get this? Who and who gave you authority to start doing this stuff? Because back then, rabbis would take disciples, just like mm -hmm. Jesus went around. They did not select them the way that Jesus selected his disciples. Right. That's another podcast. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, yeah. but, it, but it's definitely interesting That's when you look now. at who, <laughs> the way that he yeah, selected them was not orthodox. You know, they did mm -hmm. not pick tax collectors and people like that to be there. <laughs> uh, and usually not fishermen straight out of the water, you know, to mm -hmm. be their, um, their disciples. So what they would do is they would take a disciple and that disciple would have to study with them. Honestly, it's almost like in Islam, we, you know, you don't grow your beard till you make Hajj and you don't have to make Hajj till you're a certain age. And that, mm -hmm. I mean, there was no people that were 31 running around with a million disciples. Normally you had to pay your dues for many years before you could independently walk into a synagogue and say, I'm just doing this on my own authority. Mm -hmm. So when they looked at him, they said, Okay, but who gave you the authority to, to do these things? Because you're too young to be here just saying this stuff by yourself. But it also showed respect for what he was saying and doing because it was very extraordinary and they recognized the power behind it. He wasn't saying things that were, you know, stupid. So they, they wanted to understand where it came from. So they were, when they ask him that, they're asking him about attribution. Mm -hmm. Who did you study with? And, you know, these rabbis even taught their disciples things like healing, quote unquote, mm -hmm. some of which was praying for people for healing. And some of it was casting out demons. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we know that because Jesus said, um, by whom do your own exorcists cast them out, right? Mm -hmm. If mm -hmm. I cast them out this way. So we know they were performing exorcisms and, um, <clears throat> and they were taught about this spiritual discipline um, by, these, uh, by their teachers. 
Mm-hmm. So they're wondering, he's in here by himself with these weird people that don't seem like religious disciples. Where did he come from? And to me, that really indicates that he did not have a lot of excessive background learning. Because mm-hmm. if he had, it would have been citable. Do you, mm-hmm. you understand? Oh, yeah, and on, yeah. and his, his, his family was very poor and they couldn't really have afforded to spare him because mm-hmm. he had to pay their bills. And I'll just cap this by interestingly saying it's one of my favorite things about that word authority. Obviously, it's a different word in Greek than it is in Hebrew, but um, echousia is what, what, what it is in Greek. But in, in Hebrew, it's really interesting when you look at Isaiah 9, and we all know that passage from Christmas. Uh, right. We don't, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, from Handel's Messiah, even if you're not familiar with the Old Testament. Um, and it says, like in the King James, the government shall rest upon his shoulder. But what it really, the best way to translate that is, the authority rests on his shoulders. In other words, from the moment he's born, he carries his own authority mm. because he's the because the spirit of God mm. rests in him because he's the God man. He's not a regular person. And so from the moment he's born, mm-hmm. authority rests on his shoulders. And then it says later on, and his authority shall increase continually, right? Of the increase of his government, there should be no end. The longer he lives, the more authority he gains. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm going to get saved right here, Tony. Um, oh, no, you're preaching, you're preaching man. I got to hold but, on. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean, seriously. And so when you watch him good. grow, uh, his authority grows. But then what that also is referring to is that once he, uh, once he dies and is raised by the Spirit mm-hmm. of God, uh, he's exalted to the highest place. So his mm-hmm. authority begins in that low place and he's born with it, but mm-hmm. then it continues to accelerate. Mm. That's Jamal, awesome. Jamal, we're ready to crank that organ up in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> we need to get a little sound bite so we can throw in there. Yeah. I, I really like, don't encourage me. I like <laughs> no, we love it. We love it. Um, you know, it's interesting because I was, I can't remember this guy's name. He's, you know, ethnically a Jew. He's messianic. Mm-hmm. Now he is. And um, he was he was talking about how Jesus spoke in his own authority and how unusual it was during this time period. You know, mm-hmm. like you said, he would say you would go and say Rabbi such and such said Rabbi such and such said, you know, and he, you know, he said one day he went to work and he read Isaiah 53. And he was just going around. He said, you know, I work with, with Gentiles. And he said, and they was, he would ask him where the passage was at. And, um, you know, what I'll tell him Isaiah 53. And they said, oh, it's in the Gospels. And he said, no, it's not. Look, it's right here in the Old Testament. You know, um, so that's 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 brilliant. Um, so with the Pharisees, like, because, you know, Jesus was, what, 30 years old. Would they have been more so older men, like prominent elders in the community? Uh, well, I don't know about prominent elders. The Pharisees, now the thing you have to understand is the religious leaders, this is kind of another tangent, which I won't go all the way on, but um, <clears throat> the religious leaders, we, we sort of say them together marismatically, like the Pharisees, mm. the Sadducees, and the teachers of the law, that kind of thing. Right. But, um, but those are very different groups of leaders. As you know, the Pharisees and Sadducees very much disagreed with one another theologically. Mm-hmm. Um, the Pharisees were more the popular leaders of the people. Um, and you would find them in outlying synagogues um, outside of Jerusalem, and they much more represented, I mean, or they were thought to represent sort of the common man type of thing. Mm-hmm. The Sadducees were much more like your establishment leaders um, who were um, upholding um, the traditional law, and they weren't as into what you would think of as like the mystical, spiritual side of Judaism. Mm-hmm. And the Pharisees are seen more in, in that way at, at that time. Um, so in terms of their ages, yeah, I think the Pharisees were more likely to be somewhat younger and, um, teachers of the law as well, because they're still studying, but even they are not all of them. They might be his peers in age, but they would still attribute what they're saying to an older teacher. Right. They would still submit to an older teacher. Mm -hmm. Um, and most people who are disciples of those older teachers, unless they're very extraordinary, would, would do that until that teacher died really. Um, and, and even today they record, they've recorded meticulously all the person's teachings and they preserve them. Mm-hmm. That's good. Um, let's see. So I, um, I remember when you did the class, 
Now I I can because being in seminary is it's hard to do anything when you're in seminary. <laughs> you don't I, have a life. <laughs> I know. I tell, I'm telling you, you two gentlemen. I want to tell whoever's watching this. These two guys had little babies at home, and they are so spiritual that they brought their wife and their babies to my class on a Wednesday night in the dark. Like <laughs> I felt convicted. I just want to say. <laughs> Jamal hit wow. me up and was like, man, I was at, you know, church and, uh, you know, I, he's like, man, I said, what rabbi Jesus? I said, you better sign me up. You know I said? I, you know, I love dealing with the, with history. I've always, it life changing. Yeah, it is. I've always been, I've always naturally gravitated to history. And so that's how I am with the Bible. I just, I love the history aspect of it. Yeah. Um, so I remember a portion where you were dealing with John the Baptist. Mm -hmm. Is there a reason why he baptized, where he baptized? I mean, they sent Pharisees, sent people questioning him. Are you Elijah? How is that? How should we really look at it? Because we just look at it as John the Baptist as the heralder for Christ to come, you know. Yeah. Are we overlooking him too much or, or no, I'm not, I'm just saying we general, just some folks might, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, again, I could, whenever someone asks me about John the Baptist, I'm like, how much time do you have? Oh, help um, yourself. I, uh, I really, it's a, it's almost a pet project. I even had a, a friend of mine who's a pastor. He heard me speak on John the Baptist and he was like, you better write a book on this. Cause please, you know, please, please. Um, and, and to be honest, a rabbi that I studied with, who was a dear friend of mine, he's passed away now. And he's the one that taught me so much about rabbinic literature. Um, he heard some of the things I said about John the Baptist. And he said, I've never heard that before. And mm. I'm not saying something about myself. I just feel like I got so focused on John the Baptist. And I feel like the Lord just revealed a lot about him to me mm -hmm. because Jesus spoke about him very uniquely. He didn't say things like that about people, but instead, but when you look at what he, how much time is devoted in the gospels to what Jesus said about John the Baptist, Mm -hmm. You know, among those born of women, no one has ever been born. No one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. I mean, that, and he's saying this while John the Baptist is in prison, about to die for this weird, sleazy thing. I mean, when you think about this, it's a very strange story. And I guess for me, John the Baptist epitomizes, you know, the thing that I always tell people when I teach is when you find something in scripture that feels like it doesn't make sense to you. Okay. Um, get get really excited because it means that you haven't fully understood it yet and god will reveal it to you and so um and it's piece by piece i mean it's not the whole picture so this is more about raising questions than anything else but yeah we know from matthew in particular matthew 11 and 17 that um you know jesus says he's the elijah who is to come and then he says elijah already came and they did to him whatever they wished and they understood right. that he was speaking about john the baptist of course people do like to bring up that in the book of in the gospel of john when He's asked, are you Elijah? He says, no. Um, his understanding of who he is is mm -hmm. not really relevant, in my opinion. Right. Um, and I think, you know, his father, Zechariah, in the book of Luke, when he's born, gives this prophetic word. And he says, in the spirit and power of Elijah, he will mm -hmm. restore the hearts of parents to their children, children to their parents. And uh, that is a direct reference to the very end of Malachi, which is the... Um, there's, there's two passages in Malachi that predict the great and terrible day of the Lord, which they understand, the Jews all understood to be the coming of the Messiah. Um, so in Malachi 4, lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And, there, and then he says, he'll, return, he'll turn the hearts of parents to their children and children to their parents. So it's the same words that are used in at John the Baptist's birth by his father, mm -hmm. um, who, by the way, was a priest, a Levite priest. Right. Um, it says he and his wife were descendants of Aaron. And um, interestingly, uh, the way that it's written in the book of Malachi about John the Baptist, it says he'll purify the descendants of Levi. Mm. And mm. through John the Baptist, there's this purification and fulfillment of the priesthood because the priesthood is meant to show people the way to the spirit of God. And so we see that priesthood role fulfilled in John the Baptist, even though in Jewish culture at the time, he didn't take the office of a priest technically. Mm -hmm. 
So there's, there's that. And then of course the most famous passage about him is Isaiah 40. He's the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And, uh, but in both places, he's spoken of as one who's going to prepare the way for the Lord. Also in Malachi, he's spoken of that way. So Jesus openly says that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of these scriptures. So first of all, we do need to understand him as, as Elijah mm-hmm. or the spirit of Elijah. I mean, again, I'm not saying that he's reincarnated as, <laughs> as Elijah, but it is significant that Elijah did not die. Um, but in Second Kings, we know that he, <clears throat> he's with his disciple, Elisha. He crosses the Jordan and there's two sides to the Jordan. There's the ordered side where the camps of Judea would be, where the Israelites live in t- towns and ordered cities. And on the other side of the Jordan is what they call the wilderness side of the Jordan. Right. And we know that um, before Elijah was taken up in the fiery chariot by the Lord, he crossed the Jordan River mm-hmm. to the wilderness side and he's taken up in this fiery chariot. And it says his, his, his spirit, the double mm-hmm. portion of his spirit, as we know, was, was almost like transferred through that mantle or whatever onto Elisha or Elisha, however you want to pronounce it. Mm-hmm. And, um, that first of all shows us that his spirit is transferable, that there's some, something that God has anointed, his anointing or something is, I don't, I don't know specifically, I, I wouldn't want to come down on this too hard because it's very theoretical, let, right. let me qualify it, but that it's transferable. It, mm-hmm. it can be given to someone else. And, um, and so I, I think you know, we need to understand that he's not actually Elijah reincarnated. He has the spirit of Elijah. He has that anointing over him. So him not being aware of that is not relevant to me. Um, but we also see, I, I mentioned that then he sort of is taken up into the sky um, on the wilderness side of the Jordan. And then if you look in Matthew 3, mm-hmm. the, the exact words that are used, the, the Greek word that's used there means John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness beyond the Jordan declaring a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Mm. So you have this word, he appeared. In other words, he suddenly materializes in this place, you know, socially speaking, publicly Mm. speaking, he didn't actually, you know, um, uh, in the exact place where all Jews know that Elijah disappeared from the earth. He appears there and he comes and sort of stands in the Jordan River. So you want to understand the Jordan River as a boundary between that ordered space of Judea and the chaotic wilderness space, okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, there's so much that I could say, I don't wanna overwhelm anyone, but I think this, this Jordan River being the boundary, or we would use the word, it's a liminal space. It's neither one nor the other. It's halfway mm-hmm. in between is what I mean by liminal. Okay. John's ministry itself, and John the Baptist himself represents the, this liminal space between the old covenant in the wilderness with the people of God, with the Torah, mm-hmm. and the new covenant mediated through the word made flesh. Mm-hmm. And, and John the Baptist is the one who's sent to usher them from one to the other, to prepare right. the way for Jesus, and, and usher in what's called the Messianic age in mm-hmm. Jewish literature. Um, and so he does this work in this liminal space all day long. He's always baptizing people in this halfway point because Jesus hasn't come yet. Mm. So you see how that sort of yeah. reflects exactly <laughs> what, what he's doing. And, um, and you know, that is the reason why Jesus said, among those born of women, meaning this exact minute, mm-hmm. he, no one has ever arisen greater than, than uh, John the Baptist. There's never been a greater prophet is what, mm-hmm. what he's saying. Um, he said, and yet I tell you, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him because mm. he's going to die before seeing my glorification. Wow. And um, he's, he's saying, you know, it's like when he says later in Matthew, blessed are your eyes for they see and blessed are your ears for they hear. But many righteous people and prophets long to see what you see and they didn't see it. Yeah. And, and, and that's what he's saying. He's saying John the Baptist is right on the cusp of that. And yet he's not going to see it. I mean, mm, wow. he'll see it in glory, but. <laughs> mm. Wow. That's good stuff. Mm-hmm. I think that is deserving of a book. I'd be the first one to buy it <laughs> myself. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Autograph. Let me get an autograph copy. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, like this, this stuff is, I mean, to me, it, I feel like it's needed, you know, um, yeah. me personally, but, you know, and so we can kind of miss these nuance, subtle nuances in the text. I mean, 
you know, just going back, it can help our hermeneutic a little bit, maybe homiletic yeah. when we preach, you know, just seeing how, you know, the role of Christ, you know, fulfilling prophecy, you know, and through the eyes of, of our Jewish audience at that particular time period, you know, so <clears throat> to me, this is, I mean, this is, like I said, it's a treat today for me. Um, let me shift gears just for a second. So we've been talking about, you know, obviously the Jewishness of Jesus um, and even John the Baptist here a little bit. Why has, or in your assertion, what do you, what do you make it out to be that a lot of us have forgotten about a Jewish Christ in the West? Like, is there a certain time that it may have started being peeling away or, you know, is there a, a cause and effect to you know what's you know the stripping away of his his um heritage yeah i mean that's that's a really good question and um i get asked that a lot because mm-hmm. i think people feel the same way you did i start to tell them some things like what i just said and you know you really you don't have to be a scholar to understand what i just said it's just mm-hmm. that i did i can't say here's a book where i learned that mm-hmm. i figured that out from studying for years and you know God doesn't expect us all to be Hebrew and Greek scholars. That's not, that's not true. So I would say that, um, you know, the short answer to that, in my opinion, is that first of all, um, what people may not know is that first century Christians um, before Nero and before the Roman emperors that came later that were really opposed to Christianity, um, you know, first century Christians were just considered by the Roman government to be a sect of Judaism. Mm -hmm. So they just looked at it like, I mean, it's like a secular person who doesn't understand the difference between Catholicism and Protestantism. So when they ask you, like, did you have to confess to the priest? And you're like, I'm not that kind of Christian. Right. right. So to to them, it's, (laughs) it's sort of, you know, well, whatever, it's all Christianity. And I don't do that. Mm -hmm. That's sort of how the Romans looked at Christianity. They were like, well, this is just something that the Jews are arguing about related to their law, and we don't really understand this. Mm-hmm, I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it, and you see this particularly in Acts when Paul has to keep going before King Agrippa and the Roman um, leaders, and they're like, well, this is just about some weird argument about your law, so just go work it out with yourself. And the Pharisees mm-hmm. are saying to him, no, 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 this is something more important. And, you know, I think... Um, people don't understand that for a long time, I mean, not a long time, but, you know, at least a century, people just thought of of Christianity as Jewish because, and because most of the prominent converts were actually Jews. Right. Um, And and they just viewed it as a completion of their Judaism, that I'm Jewish, I've observed this all my life, and now I know the Messiah has come. Mm -hmm. And Orthodox Jews today still wait for a literal Messiah. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, more Reformed Jews, I don't, they don't always believe that an actual Messiah is coming, but Orthodox Jews do. And so, you know, if he were to come, then they would say, this doesn't change my Judaism. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what it was like then. But of course, um, then Roman emperors arose who became opposed to Christianity for various reasons. And there started to be this sort of splitting apart um, persecution. Um, And then you move into the fourth century when Constantine uh, becomes uh, the first Christian Roman emperor. Um, And there's, you know, obviously dispute about this and his motivations, but he was the first Roman emperor to to convert to Christianity. Mm -hmm. Um, His mother was was Greek and she was a Christian. And that's what people say why he converted. Funny funny enough, they say the same thing about Augustine. It's like a weird Oedipal. I would love to get it. Anyway, (laughs) I don't know what that, I don't know what that has to do with it. Um, But, and he um, did a lot of things, but basically he normalized uh, Christianity in Roman culture. Mm -hmm. Um, He didn't necessarily say everyone in Rome is now a Christian. That's kind of an exaggerated way of looking at it, but he did normalize Christianity in Roman culture. And, you know, the Romans, they're assimilationists. That's what they do. They come and they take every culture and they make it their own. They're, they're mm. like the original imperialists, you know, of mm. the earth. So, so they, they took Christianity and made it Roman, you know? And um, so he called the first council of Nicaea in 325. And this is where um, a lot of Christian basic Christology is what we call it as Christian doctrine about Christ uh, began. Uh, and a lot of our doctrine about it began. Um, and it was sort of the first organized statements of Christian theology that were not just gospels. Mm-hmm. or letters. Um, 
And, um, you know, the group of priests and leaders there, as far as we know, those have been disputed as well, I guess, but they were primarily Roman, Greek, and North African. And um, so they didn't know anything about, <laughs> and, and this was 300 years after Jesus had been on earth. And these guys, none of them had a Jewish background mm -hmm. and they did love the Lord, but they didn't know all of that stuff. You know, mm -hmm. they knew some of it or they reinterpreted it based on their own, you know, culture. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, I think that because that was such a foundational moment, this sort of normalizing of Christianity and then creating this public statement of doctrine. And it was created really without any Jewish input. Um, and I think that was sort of the beginning of the like Westernization of, you know, Christianity. Um, and I'm not even saying that in a critical way, it's just a historical, you know, progression what? of what happened. Mm -hmm. I mean, I am critical of it, but, um, <laughs> but not because of, not because of that, just because it's, right. you know, it's so political, but. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, have, I have a question for you. Um, yeah. and I, I, I guess I kind of want to hone in on one specific aspect of, um, or aspect in the scriptures that we see. What is the big deal, um, about the, perse the persecution of Christ from a Jewish perspective. Um, I guess historically, uh, um, you know, what would have been the reason why they would take him to, um, to the Romans to mm -hmm. kind of have him stand before, you know, judgment? Um, and, and how does that kind of play a role in, in how we view Christ and, 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 how we interpret that whole scenario. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess what I, what I wanna know is, are you, I just wanna clarify, are you sort of asking me like, why did they persecute him in the first place? Or are you asking me if I think that that muddied the, our ability to see the difference between Jews and, you know, cause the whole right. story is all Jews in other words. Right. But of course you, the most famously we have in World War II, the Nazis claiming that, well, the Jews, you know, were the ones that killed Christ, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is the most ignorant argument you could ever make because every single player in the whole story, except Pontius Pilate, <laughs> was, was Jewish. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. every, you know, Jesus was Jewish. His disciples were Jewish. The people who tried to defend him were Jewish. It, it doesn't, it's literally the dumbest argument. Um, I mean, like, like most things that the Nazis said, it's literally the dumbest. But um, <laughs> I mean, I mean, it, it's not rooted in the actual text. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, in, but I, I did want to point at that because um, I think the, what, what we ought to ask is not why did they say that, but how were they able to get away with saying that? Mm -hmm. um, well, they were able to get away with saying it because Western culture so separated what you see in the New Testament from Judaism. It was, this is the New Testament. This is a Christian text and Jews are Jews. Mm -hmm. And I think that put them in a position and that people don't read their Bible. I mean, you know, yeah, that's another, yeah. that's another podcast, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, I think um, it, it, it really set the stage for, um, for someone to manipulate that story to make it look like the Jews were the people who, you know, who killed Christ when in fact he was a Jew and all of his followers were. So it doesn't, it's, it's just a weird thing to say, in my opinion. Um, in terms of why did they persecute him? I mean, that to me, there's a couple of things I could say about it, but the bit, the best thing I can say is that was meant to happen. That's, mm -hmm. That was necessary to fulfill the scriptures. And that's what Jesus says. Because when you look at, I mean, yes, he upset them and they were jealous of him and they were bewildered by him. But really, it's like saying, why didn't Pharaoh let them go the first nine times in Egypt? Why did it take 10 plagues? That's the way God set it up. We don't really, you know, we don't fully understand it. You know, because when you look at what Jesus did, it's like, why was it so offensive? But I think one of the reasons why it was extremely offensive to them, and, and Noisner actually touches on this, and I'll tell you the name of the book at the end in case you want to look at it. Um, he says it, it was not offensive what Jesus was teaching, because his teachings were very, you know, conciliatory, right? Mm -hmm. He wasn't a rebel in the sense, we, people always want to say he was a rebel. And I mean, he was considered that at the end of his life, but he didn't behave like that. Um, he was very, he was very much not like this zealot political. He was very apolitical. And I try to remind people of that when they want to get 
political with their Christianity because he really wasn't, he wasn't political. He was all about actual, you know, spiritual justice, That's good. Which, which, you know, in today's world, we need to say that sometimes crosses over with things that people consider political, but there's mm-hmm. a way to talk about them that doesn't involve people that are running for office. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So he didn't do that. Um, I mean, you know, he didn't do that. And um, so what's interesting is that I think um, Noisner has this to say. He says, you know, if you look at like in Matthew, when he says, you have heard it said, all the phrase where he says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. I tell you, you know, you should love your uh, enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Mm-hmm. Um, every time you see that phrase, you've heard it said, but I say to you, he said, the thing that was very offensive to religious leaders and that made them so upset wasn't the, the opposite teaching. It wasn't when he said, love your enemies, because that wasn't actually offensive to them. Right. It was that he said, you've heard it said, and he quotes either the Torah or he quotes a common teaching of the day by mm-hmm. a religious authority that's respected. And then he says, but I say, mm. and he said, that was a no, no. A rabbi does not say I say against something that, that they were taught from Torah. Mm-hmm. You don't say mm-hmm. you've heard this said, but I'm telling you, mm-hmm. because that's presumptuous. It's considered almost sacrilegious. It's disrespectful. You don't, for the same reason we talked about earlier, attribution and authority, because mm-hmm. you don't have the authority to say that. That's why they said, where do you, what, by what authority are you doing all this stuff? Where did mm-hmm. you get this? Mm-hmm. Um, and so he said that was extremely offensive to them. And I, I think that's just a small point, but it really, it's something that we don't see when we read that passage. Mm-hmm. We, we, so kind of getting ready to wrap it up. Um, would you say it's important for Christians today to have this understanding of Jesus' background, his Jewish, why he said certain stuff, why he did certain stuff in understanding the Gospels? Um, I mean, I do think that obviously the more that you know about this, especially if you're a person who really loves the Lord, I think it's going to do nothing but just enrich your understanding Mm -hmm. of the word. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people like you guys and, um, you know, that that really love to study and that want to talk about these things, I would absolutely say, yeah, I mean, learning about this is going to just, you know, open up your mind to to see new things. Um, But you know, I also always just want to be careful because I think there are a lot of movements and particularly in relation to um, like the Judaic background of the scriptures, I see this a lot, um, that, that kind of have a, a feeling underlying them of you're, you're reading this wrong and let me correct you. Mm-hmm. And I always, I don't like that um, because I, I call it, it's like the secret handshake. You know, why well, I know the secret handshake and I'm going to teach you how to actually read this because you've been reading this pagan book all these years, and it's not really that. And it's not so much the meaning under what they're teaching as much as that, that spirit under it. Do mm-hmm. you, you know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? And right, I, right. I always want to go back. So I do think it's important. Um, but it's important in the sense that when people read this um, and they love Jesus, they have a personal relationship with him. You got to understand there's a difference between the historical Jesus, which is the Jesus who lived for 33 years on earth. And he was very right. Jewish. Mm-hmm. And his teachings, you know, were rooted there. Mm-hmm. But when God raised him from the dead and glorified him and exalted him, he said, now everyone is included. Mm-hmm. And, and the Holy Spirit revealed to them, no, these guys don't have to go be circumcised. No, they don't have to eat kosher. Right. They don't have to become experts in rabbinic understanding of the scripture. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean they shouldn't study the scripture. But we have the Holy Spirit to guide us as well. Mm-hmm. So I think when we learn these things, it enriches us and it can clarify certain things. But I just always want to make sure I'm being clear that I don't think you're getting it wrong, so to speak, mm-hmm. just because you don't know these some of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I always I always go back to when I when I speak about this to Colossians two, um, you know, because he says in. Um, in Colossians 2.16, Paul says, therefore, do not let anyone condemn you right. in matters of food and drink and observing mm-hmm. festivals and new moons and Sabbaths. Then he says this, these are only a shadow of what is mm-hmm. to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And mm-hmm. that is the risen Christ. That's the spiritual Christ. That's the Jesus that we all know when we pray, 
Mm-hmm. He hears us. And Jesus meets us where we are. He doesn't ask us to come up and figure out who he is so that we can get to him. He, he meets us where we are and, yeah. and raises us up. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I think, you know, that's different than the historical Jesus. That understanding can definitely enrich our understanding of scripture. But our knowledge of the Lord is, is based on our personal, you know, relationship with the eternal Christ, which, right. you know, is different. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Um, you got anything, Jamal? Yeah, I I, I was just gonna make a statement. Um, yeah, because I saw your face. Like, let me jump in. So I back up. No, 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 no. You're fine. Um, <laughs> I think I, I I think uh you know this is this is great, particularly because um I know it just for myself um having having a deeper understanding of the cultural background allows me um, to be able to kind of interpret the scripture based off of the, the author's perspective Mm -hmm. and not interjecting what I believe or what I, what I, what I think they're saying, but just understanding, okay, um, you know, this probably does not mean what I think it means verbatim. So, you know, let me look at what this would have meant back then. And I, I, I just think it's, it's, it's powerful. And I, I feel like it gives me a deeper understand, not a deeper, I don't want to use that term, but um, a better understanding of, um, of, of what I'm reading and what I'm learning about Christ and, mm-hmm. and, and just about God in general. Yeah. I, I mean, to that, and I know we need to wrap up. I just, but I, I think this one might be helpful for people who are listening because we've said so much. Um, you know, the way that I like to think about this is um, if you think of a page of a newspaper, people don't really read paper newspapers, but you can imagine uh, one whole page. Okay. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. let's say it's page four, you know, well, the top section, you're going to have the second half of an article that's continued from the front page, let's say. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you can see that because you know what it is because you've looked at a newspaper before. And then there's another section that's maybe going to be a sports highlight. And then there's another section that's maybe an advertisement for, you know, ladies' stockings, okay? And then there's going to be another section that's maybe a personals ad or whatever, mm-hmm. classifieds, okay? Well, when you look at all of those things, yes, technically they are all just letters and they're all mm-hmm. the same color and they're on the same page and they're right next to each other. But because you understand how a newspaper works, you understand something else, which in literature we call genre. Not every single one of those blocks of text are the same. They have a different value. Um, It doesn't mean one's more important than the other, but you need to read them differently. So you're not gonna read that advertisement for ladies stockings the same way that you read the second half of the front page article. And you're not gonna read a news report the same way you read an op-ed article, which is somebody's Mm -hmm. opinion, which you're not gonna read the same as the sports page report. Uh, or the classifieds, completely different, right? You, and you have to know the lingo to get in there, okay? Well, if I just gave you that one page and didn't, and you had never seen a newspaper before, if you're smart enough, like you guys are, and a lot of people are, you will sit there with it and pour over it and pour over it, and you will probably be able to figure out basically what you're looking at, mm-hmm. uh, just because you're smart enough to do that. <laughs> and especially that second half of the, the, the story from the front page, we all know that you could probably figure out what it said on the front page anyway, enough to figure out that, okay, this is the end of that story. Mm-hmm. But you see where I'm going with this. Mm-hmm. But oh, yeah. if I were to then educate you on what that was and I gave you the whole entire thing, suddenly you'd say, okay, I'm not trying to put this classified ad up here at a level of reporting with you know, what's happening in the second half of this article here. And I'm not gonna put these ads over here with the sports page. These are different genres that are being uh, shown to me and I need to read them accordingly. Mm -hmm. And so I think sometimes what we have is people may understand more or less about one or two things, but like narrative, you know, Mm -hmm. or prophecy, but they don't understand uh, eschatological literature like Revelation and Ezekiel and parts of Daniel. They don't understand um, the difference between, I, I hear people all the time quote pieces of scripture as if it was God commanding them to do something. And I would say to them, well, that's from the Psalms. That's actually not a commandment. I don't know if you know that. But, uh, and, and of course, you know, the, the devil did that. He quoted from Psalm yes. 91 and said, so, so therefore jump off the top of this building. And mm-hmm. Jesus in, that, in his temptation with Satan only quotes the law. Because mm-hmm. he said, no, you're not going to personalize this verse mm-hmm. to make me do something. That's not how that works. 
Again, this is an understanding of pieces of scripture. And I think just as we grow in the Lord, learning this, it doesn't mean that you can't get anything out of it without knowing it. But when you do know it, as you said, it's not really a deeper understanding. It just comes into focus. It's a little clearer, you know? Mm. That was good. That is. I got some uh, taglines. I know some folks (laughs) that try to twist, you know, get you to do some stuff. But, you know, this this has been a wonderful and refreshing conversation. Um, before we go any literature um, any resources folks can and can you also detail who you studied under I I know I remember um, how prominent this 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 man was Um, whichever direction you want to go in if if you want to do that first and then literature second um, who I studied under are you thinking of someone specific I don't remember it was it Rabbi Neusner Oh, no, I didn't study under okay, him. Okay, okay. Oh, my gosh, I wish I had. Um, no, and he, he, again, he's not actually a rabbi. He's just a scholar. A scholar, okay. But uh, the man that I studied under was a wonderful uh, man. He was Hebrew Union College. He was at Johns Hopkins, and he was also the rabbi here in Richmond at um, Orami for a time. Um, and um, very well known for his work. He wrote a very famous pamphlet about the Holocaust called Lest We Forget, and his name was Levi Smolar. Wonderful, wonderful man. Uh, and, um, you know, if it hadn't been for him, I know that there's a lot about rabbinic literature I just would never understand as long as I live, mm-hmm. um, to be honest. Um, and um, it's because he was made to study it as, as a young young man. Right. Um, but he, he just became a little more liberal in his views. Normally, strict rabbinic Judaism, they're not going to teach a woman at all, let alone a mm. woman that's not... <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I thought about this question of like r- books to read. And I think, you know, the best thing is if you start reading about the history of the Jews during the time mm-hmm. of Christ, it is a good way. You'll start to see parallels. If you know the scripture, if you know the New Testament, you'll be like, oh, that's like that. You know, that reminds me of that. This saying reminds me of this saying. And sometimes that's a good jumping off point. And then you can use the bibliographies and those books to, to go further. So, one great book, it's an old book, but I love it. It's called The Jewish People in the First Century. It's a two volume, it's big. I mean, I don't recommend reading it A to Z. I think you just go through it as a compendium. Um, and the, the editors are Safrai and Stern, that's S-A-F-R-A-I mm-hmm. and Stern. Okay. Um, and this is a great, Just it's just a compendium of history, um, you know, of Judaism during that exact time when Jesus was on earth. So it really gives some context and it will refer to a lot of the extra biblical literature as well. Um, Then Jacob Neusner, who I mentioned, um, the book that I would think you would enjoy by him is called Judaism When Christianity Began. Mm. It's a great book. Um, And, you know, I mean, he's very atheist, like he's kind of not into any of it, but you know, (laughs) it's it's a great book. Right. Yeah. but on the other hand, he doesn't, he's not anti-Christian either. Um, and then obviously in terms of like the history of Christianity, I mean, you, you probably have better books than I do on that, but a nice, neat, you know, controlled book on that. It's two volumes, but you could just pick the earlier one. It's called The Story of Christianity by Justo Gonzalez. I don't know if you know that. Yes. Book. It's a great book. It's very mm-hmm. concise. Mm-hmm. And I think it talks a lot about how the religious leaders from Judaism and then from the more Hellenized and Romanized world kind of got together and didn't get together. <laughs> um, but yeah, I would say that and not the internet. Um, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Say that for the ones in the back. Yeah. <laughs> That's just for entertainment. Yeah. You know, it's a problem when um, you got schools holding seminars, like universe holding seminars on how to Google search. Wow. That's that's when you know it's an issue. (laughs) Well, I know. I have to teach my children. I spend hours talking to my children about it. Yeah. So, um, I mean, that's that's all I have. Trevor, you have anything you want to share? Yeah. um, Just thank you so much for joining us again. This I'm ready to get a part two sometime. Um, I would. I would love that because we didn't get to the other subject that you and yes. I wanted to get to. Yes. And I, think we I think that would be important, um, <laughs> yeah. even considering, you know, the climate of today. And then, yeah. like we stated in um, previous podcasts, that we're praying for peace and yeah. uh, conversations to take place. Isaiah said, come let us reason. So um, we, we're, that's what we're praying for, especially for our city here in Richmond, um, mm-hmm. Virginia. 
and we're praying for other cities as well. So, mm-hmm. but Dr. Reese, we enjoyed it. And please folks out there, be on the lookout for another part with Dr. Reese coming out. Cause I've thoroughly, I was, it's a whole bunch of questions I still have to ask her about <laughs> second temple Judaism. And first, <laughs> you know, it's, this was a treat. Truly a treat, better than coffee, and I rarely say that. <laughs> uh, thank you. I real, I really enjoyed it. I'd love to just do it again. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes, Anytime. ma'am. Yes, ma'am. My pleasure. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we thank you again, um, Dr. Margot Reese, um, for joining us, and um, for all of you all who are listening. I um, hope you enjoyed it, and uh, be on the lookout. The episode um, um, is is is. A really good one. And like Trevor said, we we definitely would love to have her back uh, for a part two. So we love you guys. Um, thank you for listening. And we'll talk to you soon. Peace. Peace. Peace.